Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and... Welcome aboard! On today's show, we're going to discuss Rudy Giuliani and erections. No, the two are not related. Uh, we'll talk about uh, where the uh, COVID injection should be made in the body on, on the arm and whether or not people who have been afflicted with COVID previously should take the vaccine. Some questions about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and a novel vaccine called Shield. People have been asking about that. Uh, also, yesterday, I had a column in the paper about porcelain and people have asked questions about that, particularly about the mycin variety. So we'll talk about all of those things. But first of all, let me throw out my usual question for you. What property of helium accounts for its use in scuba tanks as a replacement for nitrogen? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. Uh, that, of course, is also the number for you to ask any question. And you can also text me at 514-800. So we're looking for the property of helium that accounts for its use in scuba tanks as a replacement for uh, nitrogen. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of demystifying science and uh, separating sense from nonsense, myth from fact, and as you know, there is a big need for that uh, these days because there's so much information out there and misinformation and disinformation. So it's not an easy task to uh, to deal with. But, uh, of course, we, uh, we do try. And you can always check out our website, which is www.mcgill.ca slash OSS uh, for the latest in the area of... Uh, COVID, and of course, many, many other things. You can also go there to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. All right. Well, let me get down to some interesting stuff. Uh, way back in uh, 1943, President Roosevelt received a letter. And I suppose he got many letters, but this one he found particularly intriguing because it was from a lady who worked in a munitions plant. Vesta Stout was her name, and her job was to wrap cartridges that were used to propel grenades from uh, uh, special equipped rifles. And, uh, you know, uh, with a grenade, you can't throw it very far. And uh, there were rifles that were produced that had a cartridge inside. And when the cartridge exploded, it would propel the grenade much, much further than you could throw it. Anyway, these cartridges were packed in boxes that were coated with wax to prevent any moisture from seeping in. And opening the box was done by pulling on a tab that was sticking out from a paper tape that had been used to seal the flaps under the wax. So, you know, you'd pull on this, this tab that would rip the, the wax and the uh, box would open. But Mrs. Stout had noted that the tab was weak and would tear off when tugged. And to her, this meant that soldiers would lose valuable time if they had to claw the wax to get their hands on the cartridges. 
and that gave the enemy time to approach. And since she had two sons in the military, she was concerned and she had an idea. And in that letter to President Roosevelt, she uh, explained what that idea was. Instead of the tape being made of paper, Mrs. Stout suggested it should be made of strong fabric. Well, that sounded simple enough. And uh, Roosevelt forwarded the letter to the War Production Board that then put out a request for a cloth-based waterproof tape. And of course, uh, companies uh, that were interested in producing something for the government uh, uh, looked at this because, of course, there was money to be made here and obviously also to help the war effort. And uh, eventually it was uh, Permacell, that was a division of Johnson & Johnson, that uh, came up with a solution. And Johnson & Johnson in those days, of course, already had some expertise in developing various kinds of adhesives and medical tapes. So, to uh, seal the ammunition boxes, uh, the Johnson Johnson scientists came up with a layer of tightly woven fabric sandwiched between a rubber-based adhesive and a coating of polyethylene. The fabric that they used was called cotton duck. That's a name that goes way back to the 1800s, but the name has nothing to do with waterfowl. It was derived from the Dutch word doek, D-O-E-K, for a type of canvas that was used to make sailors' garb. And polyethylene, that was a plastic introduced by uh, Imperial Chemical Industries in the 1930s, and this was the key to making this uh, product waterproof. Uh, it wasn't the only role this polymer would play during the war. Polyethylene was a critical uh, material in providing insulation for radar equipment, and it was very lightweight that allowed airplanes to be equipped with radar. Anyway, pretty soon soldiers found that the new tape had uses way beyond sealing ammunition boxes. They used it to repair their jeeps. They used it on wounds when nothing else was available. And uh, some historians have suggested that either because they were aware of the cotton duck connection or because they thought the tape shed water like a duck, they began to use the term duck tape, D-U-C-K. Uh, I really can't find any evidence for this, but it is clear that in 1975, a company called the Manco Company did obtain a trademark for duck tape, D-U-C-K, together with a yellow cartoon duck logo. And they explained that this uh, basically was a sort of a, a, a rambunctious play on the fact that people often refer to duct, D-U-C-T, tape as duct tape. Well, that term duct tape had come into use after the war, when manufacturers of heating and air conditioning ducts discovered that the tape was useful for connecting their components. And the color was changed from the original military olive green to silver. Uh, how did they do that? Well, they just incorporated aluminum powder into the uh, uh, polyethylene so that it would blend in with the tin ducts. Anyway, whether you're going to call it duck or duct, numerous clever uses were soon found for this tape. Uh, during the Vietnam War, when uh, helicopters were fired at and sometimes their blades uh, developed holes from enemy fire, these could be temporarily repaired with duct tape. 
And then, of course, there was a great deal of publicity in 1970 uh, with uh, Apollo 13. And many of you, of course, will remember this uh, when the lunar landing had to be uh, abandoned because of an oxygen tank explosion. And for three days, uh, we held our breath, not knowing if the Apollo astronauts would survive their trip back to Earth uh, after having crawled into the lunar lander, uh, which uh, acted as a lifeboat. But the trouble was that in order to rid the air of carbon dioxide, which of course you have to do, you're, we inhale oxygen and we release carbon dioxide, and so the air gets more and more concentrated in carbon dioxide in an enclosed space, and you have to get rid of that carbon dioxide, otherwise we'd be re-inhaling it, and that has all kinds of consequences. But the problem was, that uh, there were not enough uh, filters in the uh, lunar module to do the job. So they had to get some filters from the uh, the main uh, capsule, uh, which of course uh, was cold and could no longer be used. And they had to fit those filters into the lunar module. And of course, it turned out that engineers on the ground had found a way to do that by using the duct tape. And that got a great deal of, uh, of publicity. But in 1998, uh, it was a stunning bit of research. Uh, two scientists, Max Sherman and Ian Walker at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab in California, uh, found that duct tape, quote, failed reliably and catastrophically in preventing energy loss when used in the heating and cooling ducts of houses. Well, as you might expect, this unleashed some media frenzy. Because after all, I mean, finding that duct tape was not good for ducts, well, that was good for headlines. And uh, it had a beneficial spin-off on consumers because they started to ask whether or not there were better materials to use on the ducts, and indeed there were. And uh, these are called mastics, and they can be formulated with acrylic or silicone or synthetic uh, rubber, and they can lead to considerable savings in energy. And indeed, building codes have been changed to prevent the inappropriate use of duct tape because of that study. Obviously, duct tape still has many, many applications. As, as you may remember, MacGyver, the TV hero, would never go anywhere without duct tape because it could fix almost anything. You can fix the broken taillights of your car. Uh, you can secure wigs uh, and even remove warts. A uh, much publicized research paper in 2002 reported that duct tape applied to a wart for two months was more effective than the usual treatment with liquid nitrogen. Unfortunately, subsequent studies did not really corroborate that, so uh, I haven't heard of it uh, being used uh, recently. Then there was the judge in Ohio who ordered an abusive defendant's mouth to be duct taped shut during a, a trial. And criminals, at least in the movies, have used duct tape to bind their victims to chairs. So it certainly is a, a very useful uh, commodity, and virtually every household now has a, a roll of duct tape. There actually are many, many different kinds of, the, of this tape, different types of adhesives, uh, different kind of polymer uh, coatings, different fabrics, but uh, they basically are all intended to do the, uh, the same job. So there you go. You know the story behind duct tape, or if you want to call it duct tape, that's all right as well. 
Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Turns out that uh, Rudy Giuliani has a YouTube channel. I guess that isn't really surprising. Everyone these days has a YouTube channel. In fact, we have one. It's uh, youtube.com slash McGillOSS. You can find all kinds of interesting stuff there, all my videos. Uh, and Rudy has one. And in a moment of madness, I decided to look at it. So I'm watching this uh, drivel that he, he puts out. And... One of the things I see, an advertisement for cigars. There he is, smoking cigars and promoting a certain brand. Uh, but that became really curious when he then starts promoting a health supplement. And that was uh, something called Omega 3 XL. Uh, obviously, cigar smoking is not particularly healthy. And here is now Rudy promoting something for, uh, for health. Uh, as you probably know, omega-3 uh, fats have gotten a lot of publicity, much of it favorable, and some of it deserved. Uh, there is some evidence that uh, taking certain omega-3 fats, uh, especially ones that are found in fish, at a certain dose may have some moderate effect on symptoms of, of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this is not ironclad evidence, but there is some uh, some evidence. So it probably is worth trying if someone is uh, is desperate. But obviously, you want to know what you are taking exactly and how much you are taking. So I started to look at this uh, Omega 3 uh, XL, and I couldn't find any numbers. I couldn't find any dosage, except to say that you are to take, uh, I think, three capsules uh, a day. But aside from the fact that this is some sort of isolate from New Zealand lip green mussels, um, there's nothing to suggest just how much uh, omega-3, which omega-3 are, are present uh, in there. Now, I can't say that this product is, is useless or that it is useful because in science, we work with numbers. And the only way you can even make a guess at whether or not something is potentially beneficial is by looking at the scientific studies, seeing what was done, what were the doses used, what were the effects, etc. So I, I really can't put any weight on, on, this, uh, on the benefits of this product. Uh, and of course, why would anyone think that uh, Rudy Giuliani who, let's face it, recently has not been a beacon of honesty, uh, why we should think that he has any sort of uh, knowledge about uh, omega-3 fats. Anyway, I also said that I was going to uh, have a word about uh, erection and that it wasn't related to Giuliani or his uh, appearance on the uh, Sasha Baron Cohen movie. No, this has to do with COVID, and it's actually quite a serious story because uh, uh, there's a report in the medical literature of a gentleman who was suffering from COVID, and one of the consequences was uh, a state of sustained priapism, that is sustained erection. And uh, we know that 
one of the consequences of COVID can be the formation of blood clots, especially microscopic uh, blood clots. And uh, if these happen to, to uh, uh, block a vessel penis, then you can have this sustained erection, which is what he had. And the doctors had to, to try to uh, resolve this problem uh, with a syringe by taking out some fluid from the organ in question which they managed to do, and they relieved the, the man of this uh, problem. Uh, but unfortunately, he was very seriously ill with COVID, uh, and he eventually um, passed away. But this is a, an interesting report of uh, a, a consequence. Now, of course, it is a very rare consequence of, uh, of COVID-19. All right, we have some callers on the line. Let me go to Dean. Hi, Dean. Hi, how are you, Dr. Schwartz? Good. What can we do for you? I think I have your answer for the component uh, for helium in scuba diving. Yeah. Uh, It's an inert gas uh, used to replace nitrogen in deep dives to prevent uh, nitrogen narcosis or uh, rapture of the deep. Well, that is true, but that uh, that doesn't answer the question. I said, what property of helium accounts for for this? Why would you use helium instead of of nitrogen? Oh. Okay, well, I guess I don't have it then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see if someone else does. All right, let's go to Ryan. Ryan. Joseph. Joseph. Yes. Yes, sir. Hello. Go. Hello. What? <laughs> By the way, uh, you know, my daughter was in your class at McGill University. I'm very... Uh, very uh, por- fortunate for that. No, no, I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> okay, but but I believe I will believe you when you tell me that. Yes. Uh, what can you tell me about ivermectin and COVID? Well, there's a lot of stuff on the internet about it, uh, but uh, mu- much of it is unreliable. We we look at the proper studies that have been done, and there are some studies that are underway now with uh, ivermectin because there is some potential there. But none of none of the studies so far have concluded that that it is uh, uh, viable f- for recommending uh, treatment. But uh, that uh, that may change there as as uh, new data emerges. So I would not put it into the bo- bogus. Category. I would not say that it's in the same category as hydroxychloroquine, which by now has been shown in numerous studies not to be effective. Oh. So we'll wait on ivermectin. Uh, I, if I had to, to wager on that one, uh, I would say that in the end it will turn out to have some minor use in serious cases, but certainly mm. not, not something that can be used to prevent the disease. Okay? All right. All right. Okay. Let me go to Jane. Jane. Do we have Jane? Listen. Hello? Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. Go ahead. I always see my building on Dufferin, and everything you say is so fantastic. I've been listening for years, years, and I'm trying to talk. Every night I speak to Dr. Miller, but Dr. Miller disappeared. What happened to him? Did he die? Not that I know. What is going on? Who am I going to talk to at night? Can't you be at night? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what happened to that program. I'm not privy to the inside information. 
Okay, we'll we'll try to find out for you. Okay, we'll try to find out. All right. So so I still have this this question about uh, uh, helium. I mean, it's been identified as the substance that is used in scuba tanks. Uh, I mean, in scuba tanks, you don't just uh, uh, compress air, which of course is is uh, nitrogen eighty percent, oxygen twenty percent, roughly. You don't just compress that. What you do is is you replace most of the nitrogen by helium. So what you really have in the scuba tank is a mixture of uh, helium and oxygen. And uh, as our, our, our caller suggested, the reason for doing that is to prevent the bends, uh, which is this painful condition uh, that happens when divers uh, come up too quickly. So, but the, the question that I'm asking is what is the property of helium uh, that uh, makes this possible, that accounts for its use in, uh, in scuba tanks? So there's something that is different uh, that helium does as opposed to what nitrogen uh, would do. So that's what uh, we're asking. So anyway, if you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. And uh, right now we're going to take a break. We'll check what is going out in the big world. Uh, we'll check in with CTV News and we'll be back. And after that, we'll talk about Shield and the Johnson & Johnson uh, uh, vaccine and a rather disturbing story from the New York Times that claims that California bagel is better than New York bagel. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Be a boy to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. Be a boy to do science. Just figuring out what's true. Had a question about what happens if they don't inject the vaccine directly into the deltoid muscle. That's the muscle on the upper part of the arm. Uh, the only thing that I've ever heard is that if uh, they make a mistake and inject it into the joint, the shoulder joint, that that can cause shoulder problems, uh, that can cause pain. Uh, as far as immunity goes, I, I don't know. I, I really don't think that they would miss the deltoid muscle uh, often. And uh, I doubt that it would make a difference in, in uh, how effective the vaccine is. But maybe, uh, you know, someone who's an expert in, in uh, vaccination would give us the answer to that. But I know that if you inject it into the shoulder joint, that can cause a, a problem. Okay, another question that came up is, is whether or not people who've previously had COVID uh, whether or not they should get the vaccine. The general recommendation now is yes, that they should. Uh, there have been some cases of people who have uh, had COVID and then tested positive after that. So it doesn't give you total protection in terms of antibody production, but I think it gives you some, certainly some pro uh, product, uh, protection. And uh, I think that people who have had COVID before should probably go to the end of the line before getting the, the vaccine. Now, the vaccine that uh, uh, has raised some issues is the AstraZeneca vaccine, which Quebec has, has approved. And uh, 
it is also given here under a different name. And a lot of people were surprised when they went to get a vaccine and they were told that they were getting the COVID shield vaccine, which they had never heard of. The COVID shield vaccine is actually the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's the one that was developed in conjunction with Oxford University. But uh, it is uh, manufactured in different places around the world. And the largest vaccine manufacturers are in India. And that's where the uh, COVID shield is being produced. So this is just the Indian manufacturer's name for for the vaccine. But it is manufactured uh, according to AstraZeneca protocol, and it's uh, identical to the version that is manufactured elsewhere. The question that has also come up about the AstraZeneca vaccine is whether or not it is effective in over 65-year-olds and whether or not there's a link to uh, increased risk of uh, uh, clot formation. And this has been in, in the news in the last few weeks. Uh, when the experts have weighed in on this, they've, they've looked at all of the data and they have not found any reason that it should not be given to people over 65. And indeed, uh, the countries that previously objected to this, uh, which was uh, Germany and France, now are indeed giving the, uh, this vaccine to people over the age of 65. And as far as the complications that were uh, attributed to, to blood clots, uh, there were very, very few cases. And again, the expert opinion is that they are not related to the vaccine. Obviously, when you have large numbers of people uh, being uh, uh, treated in any kind of way, there will be some who will have some sort of complication that arise, uh, irrespective of the uh, treatment that is being used. So that's the, that's the current uh, opinion uh, on that. And then I told you about this uh, disturbing article in New York Times about the bagel. And I tell you what is disturbing about it is that they are talking about the controversy that has been raised by New Yorkers uh, because there are people in California who have opened up bagel bakeries who are suggesting that the California bagel is better than the New York bagel. So why do I look at this with a wary eye? Because... It isn't even mentioned in the article in the New York Times that the clearly superior bagel is the Montreal bagel. So who cares whether or not California produces a bagel that may be better or comparable to, to New York? Neither compares to Montreal bagel. All right, let's go to the lines. Ryan. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Um, we're talking about the uh, use of uh, helium and yeah. I suspect it uh, doesn't dissolve in the blood as easily as nitrogen, so you don't have the buildup of, of helium gas uh, in terms of it being absorbed into the blood, which then gets released as the pressure decreases on their way up, preventing the bends. So it's probably the uptake of the helium that may be the answer you're looking for. Yep, you hit the nail on the head. It is the solubility difference between nitrogen and helium. He Helium is virtually insoluble in water, and blood, of course, is mostly water, and nitrogen is quite soluble. And uh, under pressure, a lot of nitrogen dissolves in, in the blood. So when you come up too quickly and the pressure is released, uh, the nitrogen bubbles out of the blood, and that's what causes the bends. You don't have this problem with helium because helium is not soluble in blood in the first place, so you, you don't have to worry about bubbles being formed. Very good. All right, now that that question has been answered, I will pose another one. 
What did Scottish physician Joseph Black discover in the 1750s when he dropped sulfuric acid onto limestone? So way back in the 1750s, Joseph Black dropped sulfuric acid onto limestone. What did he discover when he when he did that? If you know the answer, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. I did have a text uh, message. Uh, somebody wanted to know uh, about this. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's novel because I've, uh, I haven't heard of this particular product before, but you know, it, it may be, it's a, it's a kind of uh, a device. It's called a straw, although it's, it isn't really a straw, uh, that you can, it's called the life straw and it lets you drink water from a lake or I, I guess from, from a river. Uh, it's a filtering device and it's made, uh, with, a. a plastic material that has very, very small pores in it so that bacteria don't get through and microplastics don't get through. And of course, the most worrisome thing when you're drinking something from, from uh, you know, outdoor water are, bar- are uh, parasites like Giardia. It apparently filters that out, also filters out bacteria. Uh, I would have to look carefully at exactly what the specs are of this this product but uh uh you know such science is known so it certainly is possible to devise uh, uh filters like this the question is how long will that filter last and uh, of course it is not going to take out substances that are dissolved in the water so it will not take out uh, uh some chemicals that we worry about you know it will not take out things like mercury or, or lead but it will take out the bacteria which is you know probably the most uh, problematic uh, uh, thing all right so that's uh, uh that's about this life straw thing and i think the company also produces a whole range of water filters and uh, they're probably fine because it's not difficult to uh to produce these uh, these things um uh, i'm just looking at the questions here that have come in by uh, uh texts I'd bet many male anti-maskers will now change their minds about covering their snouts with some uh, PPE after hearing there's a risk to their nether regions. Uh, yeah, that may make a, a difference because a lot of men, of course, are concerned when it comes to those uh, uh, nether regions, as as you say. Uh, yes, and someone, of course, agrees that Montreal Bagel is... Uh, superior and that you know this is a, a tempest in a teapot when you're talking about uh, bagel differences between new york bagel and uh, uh, california uh, bagel uh, as i mentioned uh, yesterday in uh, in the gazette or an article about the history of porcelain which i think is very very interesting because there was a connection to alchemists, uh, and it was a, a German alchemist by the name of Johann Butger, uh, who was trying to make uh, base metals turn into gold, and uh, of course was unsuccessful, but in the process did manage to find a way to make porcelain, which at that time was unknown in Europe. It had uh, been imported from, from China, which of course is the reason that we call China where uh, China. And uh, I mentioned there that uh, the first factory that um, was created in Europe to manufacture the uh, porcelain was the Meissen factory in the early 1700s in, in Germany. And uh, 
that was created by Augustus the, the Great, who was the ruler of, uh, of Saxony at that time. And I, I said that uh, some of the mycin porcelain is, is uh, valuable. So uh, I've been you know, asked about how you can authenticate this. Well, of course, the only people that can really authenticate it are the experts. But real mycin porcelain has uh, the mycin logo, which you can find on, on the internet, which is these two cross swords on it. And also, they will describe to you exactly what uh, what it should look like to know whether it's uh, it's mycin. And uh, if anyone really does have some early mycin, I'd be happy to hear about that. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Doctor Joe Show on CJAD eight hundred. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, interesting question. Text it in. Someone says, I chew 50 grams of Viagra instead of taking it with water. Is this dangerous? I feel it makes the effect faster than taking it with water. I've told you that numbers in science are very important, so be explicit with them. You are not chewing 50 grams of Viagra, believe me. Maybe 50 milligrams, which is the common dose. And uh, 50 grams would be a thousand. There's There are a thousand milligrams in a gram. So that you'd be... Uh, overdosing uh, by orders of magnitude. So you're taking 50 milligrams of, of Viagra. Now, whether or not it works faster with, with water, it's an interesting question. And um, the only thing I know about that is that way back, oh, about 20 years ago, I know that Wrigley's applied for a patent for making chewing gum with uh, Viagra. And there the idea was that that uh, people would enjoy chewing it more than taking a pill. Uh, although they applied for the patent, this thing was never produced. So I would imagine that if they had found some evidence that it works better by chewing, they would have pursued this. So that's really all I have to, to go by. Uh, and also, there's no scientifically plausible reason to think that chewing it uh, would be uh, better uh, because it still ends up in your intestine. Now, the only thing I, I, I can imagine is that by chewing it and swallowing it, uh, the uh, particle size uh, would be broken down. So it might be absorbed into the bloodstream somewhat faster. Uh, that's conceivable. Uh, but I don't know of anyone who has uh, studied that. Uh, on the other thing, on the other hand, I, I doubt that there's any harm in, in uh, using it in that fashion. So it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, question, and uh, uh, I imagine that the reason that the Wrigley's never never produced it is uh, is because they didn't find that there was anything uh, to it. All right, uh, let me just uh, go to David, who is on the line. David. Yes, hi, Joe. Uh, just wondering hi. if, if uh, I could uh, take a stab at the Joseph Black. Yes, absolutely. Well, it seems like he was a chemist, and this is way back. This was before James Watt, who invented the steam engine. And uh, his experiments involved uh, acid with... Uh, calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate 
and he, he was able to calculate by weight that a gas had been released, and I think this was this carbon dioxide. Yes, it was. I mean, uh, that discovery was carbon dioxide. Uh, Joseph Black called it fixed air. And, uh, of course, carbon dioxide is produced whenever you uh, combine any kind of acid with a carbonate. Carbonates are CO3. So CO2 is released from uh, carbonates with an acid. And the Black found that it was denser than air. And, uh, of course, it did not support combustion and it did not support uh, animal life. Uh, when you put a, a mouse in a, uh, under a glass that contained only carbon dioxide, the, the mouse did not survive. And uh, carbon dioxide, I, I guess, started to be famous in 1772 when Joseph Priestley uh, published a, a paper called Impregnating Water with Fixed Air. And you can imagine what that was all about. That was the first production of soda water. And he did this by dripping sulfuric acid onto chalk. He collected the carbon dioxide and bubbled it through water. And uh, at that time, this was a big breakthrough because although carbonated waters were known, there are many natural sources of, of carbonated water. Uh, this was the first time that it was able to be produced uh, for people who had no access to naturally occurring uh, carbonated water. So that was really the beginning of, uh, of soda water. And then uh, in 1823, uh, Humphrey Davy and Michael Faraday, uh, two of the greatest chemists ever in England, uh, were able to take carbon dioxide gas and pressurize it, and that converted into a liquid. So then you, you had liquid carbon dioxide. And the earliest description of solid carbon dioxide, which of course is what uh, we call dry ice, that was given by Adrien Jean-Pierre Tillerier, and that was in France in 1835. And he had a, a cylinder that contained carbon dioxide under pressure, and he opened it quickly, and the gas evaporated, or the liquid evaporated very quickly, turning into a gas. And when such evaporation occurs, there, of course, is a very rapid cooling. And uh, the rapid cooling converted the liquid uh, carbon dioxide into this powdery material that looked like snow. And that was... Uh, uh, dry ice. Today, of course, dry ice is uh, is getting a lot of attention because it is required for transporting uh, the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine that has to be kept at about minus 70 uh, degrees. And uh, of course, it has many other uses. Uh, I'm sure some of you have uh, ordered uh, steaks online that are delivered with uh, dry ice. And uh, it's a very, very useful uh, commodity. Now, the other vaccines uh, don't require dry ice temperatures. And that, of course, is, is a plus because uh, it's much easier to transport substances that require only refrigeration uh, temperatures. And uh, Johnson & Johnson, the latest vaccine to be approved, is in that category. It doesn't need these extra uh, extreme temperature to uh, be transported. And also, uh, that is a one-dose vaccine. So far, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine looks very good. 
it uses a different technology than Pfizer and Moderna. It's not the messenger RNA technology. It, it is an older type of technology uh, that uses what we call an adenovirus. That's the kind of virus that transmits colds. And uh, you don't have to worry about getting COVID from this vaccine because it's not a, it's not a COVID uh, virus. So they just incorporate the gene for the production of the spike protein of the coronavirus into the uh, gene of the adenovirus. It delivers this uh, into cells and the body starts producing the, the, uh, the spike protein and then reacts by uh, generating antibodies to battle it so that the next time when you get the real virus, it will recognize it. And uh, so far, Johnson Johnson vaccine looks uh, very good. And of course, the fact that it's a single dose uh, is also a benefit. But that's it for today. We have once again run smack out of time. And I hope that we've answered some of your questions and that we've also generated some interest in science. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.